This episode of Two True Freaks is sponsored by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades.com offers 37% off all major publishers. InStockTrades.com offers free shipping for orders over $50. Most orders are shipped within 48 hours, and there are thousands of titles currently in stock. That's InStockTrades.com. And be sure to tell them Two True Freaks sent you. Two True Freaks reaches thousands of listeners each and every month. If you would like to sponsor an episode, please stay tuned after this show for details. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. And Chris Honeywell. Hello and welcome to Two True Freaks. This is Comics Monthly Monday number 21. And I am Scott Gardner. And I'm Chris Honeywell at our show's legal drinking age. Woohoo! <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, I'm not drunk tonight, sorry. Uh, I'm not even hopped up on energy drink or anything. I'm drinking Sunkiss Solar Fusion. Solar Fusion. Awesome. Tropical Mandarin. Yeah, I'm I'm out of caffeine. I'm not out of booze, but you know I'm I'm, yeah. I'm trying to take it easy. You know I, I can't drink every single show. I cannot let <laughs> podcasting drive me to alcoholism. You know my my wife and kids are doing a good enough job of that as it is. So. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, you were telling me just before we started recording that you were a completely lucky bastard today. I had and a, you, oh man! I had a great day. A, I got mail in today that had a great comic that I'll go into more. Uh, well, actually, you probably already heard about it in Star Wars Monthly Monday earlier this month, so I won't gloat about that anymore. These shows are getting recorded out of order, so the timeline. The timeline is all messed up, man. We have to go back and fix the timeline. Um, <laughs> but uh, that was good news in the mail. But um, oh, oh, I didn't even tell you about this other good news. I got a package in the mail from Johnny Bueno, our own friend Johnny Bueno of the Comic Bag. Oh, sent yeah, that me, we'll be talking to later in the show. Yes, he sent me volume one, number one of Dan O'Neill's Comics and Stories. So those of you who listen to Back of the Bins probably remember me from, what was it, episode 60, talking about Dan O'Neill being one of my favorites, underappreciated. So this is is a hard to get. It's not as hard as 
say the air pirates funny but funnies but it's a hard one <laughs> that, to get re- that reminds me we have been getting some excellent excellent feedback to that particular episode of back to the bins i had a riot that with that's, that yeah i did too and i think that's going to go down as as a fan favorite episode we had a great piece of feedback and see this isn't back to the bins so I, I don't have that email open right now so i apologize that i can't give credit where credit's due but somebody or other contacted me with some feedback and had a brilliant idea that uh, I think we're going to have to run with this in the very near future. I had ideas for sequels to that show. And one of my ideas for a sequel was, all right, now we've done unappreciated talent. Let's do like unappreciated books or unappreciated one shots or, you know, unappreciated comics, basically. But I got I heard a much better idea, which was, OK, we've done the underappreciated Let's do most overrated talents. Oh, that's and easy. I was like, oh yes, that's just a sh- <laughs> that's just a fan going. Come on, shooting gallery. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I like that idea. Let's sling some mud. So yeah, I, I I'm totally on board with that. Yeah, Listen we've been for that. Being nice lately. Yeah. So, so yeah, I got that from Johnny Bueno, and it also had another underground comic called uh, Horny Stories Comics Number One. <laughs> which is, as you can imagine it. Um, Won't be seeing Batman in that when I take what, it. No, what, what, not as such. And um, um, the funny thing about it is, as I was looking at, the, at this package, I see another package. I'm going through this box full of like empty um, packing things because I, I save all the packing stuff and recycle it into other packing stuff. And I pick up this one bag to put in this, you know, th- box I have of empty packing things, and it's full. It's th- like got heft to it, and this goes right. And this does have Batman in it. I open it up, and this Jack, I found out, sent me this in December. It's been lost in my house since it came in the mail since December. <laughs> it was a, uh, it was a, uh, um. A comic graphic novel was Batman 3D by John Byrne. Oh yeah, um, it with a with a backup old Batman story with Ray Zone 3D, um, mm-hmm. and it was a Star Wars poster, a Dark Horse Star Wars poster, with all the I believe graphic novels on one side. You know, just a whole collection of graphic novel covers laid out, and the other side is this gorgeous painting of. Luke on tattooing with his land speeder looking at the sunset. Oh, wow. And uh, so that's been sitting. So he probably wondered why I never thanked him. For, he probably thought I was a. I can't believe I got the second package <laughs> from him now, you know, because I'd never mentioned getting that first one until, <laughs> you know, mid June. Um, but awesome. Awesome booty. But the. Oh, the booty load. Ooh, the booty load was today. <laughs> I got a few stupid things like a stupid, um, stupid plastic lightsaber, you know, just, I got a duck call, which I should have with me and honk off, but now nah, <laughs> I'll spare you guys that. Hey, you do your honking off on your own time, <laughs> yeah, right? No shit. And, uh, but, so I went, we were going into a garage sale, and what do I see in its box but circa 1973 Lone Ranger? And it's in a box. It's for silver, his horse, you know. And and I remember the ads for this. You put him on his base, and you could pose him in a whole bunch of 
different poses. Now, this wasn't the silver with the kicking action. Remember that one? The bucking mm-hmm. silver. This wasn't. This is one that's just like poseable. He's jointed. It was the one that actually made us. The commercial made a song out of the the what is it? Hi, silver away, and it's ta- and it's it fun like, to play yeah, with he, the Lone Ranger. Yeah, I can't remember the song, but yeah, everything right was like he can ride on his Lone Ranger. Yeah, yeah, that was the one. It's uh, he can ride on his white horse Tonto and pretend to make a stand. And there's uh, <laughs> something with um. Even Russ, the, even the Russ horse Sil- is silver. The Indian is Tonto. Uh, I get I. I've been doing that all day. I've been dyslexing, dyslexicing, Tonto and 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 silver all day. And I I just, just want to say just I mean I mean no offense. I don't want people to picture <laughs> the Lone Ranger riding Tonto like Kirk rode Spock in that one no, episode of Star Trek. <laughs> Tonto putting his hand up and going, me draw him line at riding Tonto. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you go ride him. You go ride him a porcupine, pale face. Tonto's fucking off from here. Yeah, and I wouldn't blame him, but it never happened. So I don't, and I don't mean to say that it ever did, or to to. I don't need a lawsuit from Tonto or the Lone Ranger at this point in my life. Did you? Did you ever see the? The far side cartoon where it says in his in his golden years the Lone Ranger long retired makes a shocking discovery and it shows him he's sitting in a, like an easy chair reading a book and it's like a dictionary and it says Kimosabi and the definition is the back end of a horse and he's like oh <laughs> so yeah so I see I see the Lone Ranger poking his head out of the out of uh silver's box and um and a price tag on it for five bucks and then behind it's another box with like the lone ranger's wagon and it's the you know it can be a conestoga wagon it can be a um what was the mess tent what what do they call the chuck wagon oh it could be a chuck wagon i think it's like a rock mining wagon you basically it has pieces it can take off and rearrange. It has a cloth cover for it. It's written and and uh, so I'm like, oh, so how much for the wagon? He's like, oh, it's five bucks for both of them. Huh? Sold. <laughs> Unreal. Every every little piece of the Lone Ranger has both his guns in their holster. He's got his neckerchief. He's got his mask. He's got a his hat is pearly white. This guy really took care of. I'm assuming they were probably his toys when he was a kid uh he had little kids there but they were little kids you know they definitely no little kid had definitely had played with this lone ranger and and silver was a guy like our age a little bit older older, a little bit older but not a lot a lot older than us you know he was probably in mid 40s to you see he's got kids and i have a hard time telling because sometimes people look older when they have kids or you know, yeah. When they live that life, you know, it's called lack of sleep, and uh, so and they were young enough, so he was probably still. There was one that was running around, but then there was another one like that mom was holding, so he was probably still in that lack of sleep. So that adds a few years and dark circles under your eyes while that's going on. But yeah, not yeah, probably old enough that he was playing with this. He was probably like four or five years older, so like seventy three. Mm-hmm. He was nine years old or so and got these and just 
was like you. He took care of him. Except for oh, the reason Migos, I asked is that because see, um, this was one of those toys that I I tracked down a number of years ago because I remember having one as a kid, you know. And but I was I was really young when I had mine. It's when we you know when my when we lived in Florida, you know, when my parents split up. I had to leave a whole bunch of toys behind, and that was one of the toys that got left behind was my Lone Ranger. So I was younger than than seven, you know, at the time. So I'm thinking if this guy was a little bit older than us, if he was, you know, closer to his teens or what, this might have been one of his childhood toys, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's why it was in such good shape. He saved, you know, saved it in the box, or maybe it's been sitting in a room or attic or something, yep. you know, all this time. And that's why it's been in such great shape. But man, that's an amazing find. Because the one that I finally ended up buying just so I could have it back again in my own collection. It's I paid a lot more than $5 and it's nowhere near it's the a great shape. It's that, it's that a you got It's a gorgeous it's very well made, you know. It's the, the Gabriel toys were really good. Like the figure is, you know, he's got some heft to him. He's built to last. Oh you know, yeah. He's got the sort of rubbery face and you know, over the hard plastic shell. So it's it's you know it's like GI Joe. They they definitely it was the Lone Ranger. It was the cowboy version of GI Joe. You know it had that same sort of level of. It's great. He's got a little um, taboo. It didn't come with either set, but his sleeping bag is in there too. So you got his like frontier sleeping bag with, which is very nicely made. You know so, yeah they really put some. Uh, a lot more detail and effort, you know, the like yeah. the like the reins of the horse have ever has a bit and you know all the pieces to it. You have to actually put it together like you would actually be saddling up a horse. You know, it's one of those things as a parent. You know, my I, I get my kids a lot of toys. They've got a lot of toys and everything, and you know, to a degree, I subscribe to what my dad always used to tell me. You know, when he'd buy me toys, you know, for birthday or Christmas or whatever, I can remember him a million times. My dad must have said, you know, they didn't have awesome toys like this when I was a kid. I find myself thinking that way a lot of times with my kids' toys. However, where our toys have theirs beat to hell and back is I swear to God, man, not a week goes by that my kids don't bring me some action figure. They leave it by the computer because they know that this is where I spend most of my time. And I find these action figures left down here for me. It's basically, here, Dad, fix this. And they've got, you know, their heads broke off or an arms broke off or a leg or whatever. These damn toys today, man, you can't play with them for five minutes without breaking the damn things. Yeah. But back when we were kids, I mean, we some of these toys we had you had to go out of your way to break the friggin' things you know what i mean uh -huh. i mean you had to get creative if you wanted to destroy them because they were made to last and i will that... note we did <laughs> <laughs> yes yes that is a sad sad tale for another yes. day of how we went out of our way to destroy some toys that oh my god oh my god but that is uh, you, you know before we uh, started recording, you know, you uh, you had the video going on uh, on Skype, and were showing me all that stuff. And oh, I am so I am I'm happy for you, but I'm also very envious because I can't believe that. Yeah, deal. I know. that is awesome. It's, now, you know, here's the big question: What are you going to do with it? It's 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 eBay. It's uh, I mean, at this point in time, I'm building my Star Wars. I'm into keeping my Star Wars collection. It's going on eBay, but not for a while. I'm. 
going to quote unquote play with it i'm going to take it apart and put it together and check it out and stuff and that's enough for me at this point because it's not something that like i wanted as a kid i remember liking it i had some friends who had some lone ranger stuff and playing with it and liking it and it's neat to look at it but it doesn't hold that and you know i mean part of my plan of survival is is ebay so this is just like with you know it was one of those days where the eBay gods just, like, threw me a bone. You know, here, this will <laughs> keep you interested in garage sailing for a while, you know. The last one was a cut was at the beginning of Two True Freaks when I got... It might have been a little before we even started a few years ago at a garage sale when I got, like, 15 beautiful, full-costumed Mego yeah. figures. And, uh... And and then later on in the day, I got those Marvel stickers from the 70s, those humor yeah. ones with the great classic art. And uh, I think that's actually just before we started doing the show, yeah. because that was in that period where the, we'd talk to each other once every, you know, like year or something. Yeah. And uh, I think you had just gotten rid of all those Migos, because otherwise I think I'd have been doing some serious, well, well, like, please, please, please yeah, pass them you would have gotten some of them for sure but you know i mean they were just like they were they were like you know paying my rent for a little while i put up you know i put them all up on ebay and it's just like just watch them go you know watch people bid on them it was just like oh my god the one that went for the most money wasn't even amigo figure it was it was the same type as amigo figure but it was some other company and it was a Frankenstein with a glow-in-the-dark head. Yes, yeah, yeah. The, and that those one went for classic that, monster ones are mm-hmm. worth some some bucks. That man. one went for significantly more than the other ones did, which were going for a, a, a pretty penny. And you know, I, I I'm not a capitalist. You know, I'm not opposed to capitalism, but I'm not. You know, I have I have my lifestyle, and I you know, and to if I was like I'm gonna make a lot of money doing this i'd have to either become cutthroat or spend a lot more time and effort than i have and want to doing it but you know yeah it's uh it'll be a, that'll be a nice probably around christmas time thing to put up on ebay and you know keep that paypal account <laughs> fat so so two true freaks it, you know you can directly say that two true freaks is is partially being fueled by the Lone Ranger <laughs> and and Silver and their wagon. So, <laughs> two true freaks brought to you by the Lone Ranger and eBay and Gabriel. <laughs> hey, I mean, to me that's the way to do it. I, I I love I love it working out like that. So, yeah, it was a good. It was it, I came home from eBay, happy as a little clam today. And with two copies of Mall Madness, one of them I got for my roommate has three pictures of me at three different um, garage sales holding up this horrible girly game called Mall Madness from the 80s, where you actually <laughs> set up this huge, intricate mall that you go shopping in, and you have a credit card, and it's a game, and you actually pay, it's electronic. Oh my god, I I remember that. I think my sister wanted that game. Oh but yeah, never in the eighties. But I know what you're talking. And about. And like, yeah. it'll tell you your credit has been denied when you run out of money and stuff like that. You know, it's like this little train, little girl, little girls to be like capitalist mall zombies game. And the first time I got it, I'm like, you know, those electronic. I'm thinking 
ah, this this will probably go on eBay to some retroy place. And then the second place we went to was a church basement sale, and they were closing shop. So they, so I'm like, ooh, look, another mall. You know, they were just like, oh, you can have that. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll take two then. And so the other one's going to my roommate's bar where they have all these board games for people to play. <laughs> and uh, at that same one, I got a, probably a five-foot straw Mexican bandito made in Mexico with a bandolier and a hat. And he's creepy looking. He's standing in my backyard scaring, hopefully, squirrels away from my strawberries. <laughs> And they and they gave me that for free too. They're like, "Really? Are you gonna give them a good home?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah." <laughs> he'll be put. He'll be appreciated. He's really creepy looking. His face looks like it's like a woven mask. So it looks like, um, not Jason. It looks like a little mixture between like a Mexican wrestler Jason and um, Michael Myers from Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just sort of standing in my backyard. Hopefully there's some transients that'll go come stumbling through my backyard and like our our motion detector light'll kick on and give the guy a heart attack. I'll just go out and like pile up the well, you remember you remember that time when uh when you and I were living together there when I was staying with you for a time in Rochester, we had that Dick Tracy standee at the top of the stairs. Oh yeah. Remember, I'd come home that one night, and what was it like? Lightning cracked outside the window or something. <laughs> yeah, like a. And bad there's this movie. fucking silhouette of a hat, you know, a hatted, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like a hooded figure, not hooded, but you know, he had his hat on. He's got his hat, and the... he's got his collar up on his yeah. and his trench coat. Yeah, he's looking all. And it looked this... for all the world like like this like thug, you know, like an old gangster or something standing at the top of the stairs waiting to you know. Now the, waiting to rub me out. Now, let's, <laughs> now I, scared the shit out. This of me. was this was at this house in Keller Street, right? Where yeah. there was an actual where we had actually caught kids like climbing in our back window, you know. So there was actually a distinct possibility that somebody could have been breaking into that house. We used to have an Obi Wan standee here that used to stand in the doorway of the room that I'm in now. That used to scare the hell out of everybody, and even when you knew about it, you'd be getting up in the middle of the night to take a piss and just be like, oh, jeez, Obi-Wan. Yeah, fuck. Jesus. <laughs> uh, that's well, why I don't piss at night. Alright, well, well, I think we should get on with the show. Um, next up, it's Johnny Bueno and the Comic Bag. And now, The Comic Pad with Johnny Bueno. Hey, yo! We're back with The Comic Bag. And, uh, Scott, we've put Scott in the timeout chamber for now. He's been bad, but we'll go into that later. Yes! And so I'm here with Johnny Bueno, about to tell you. Yes! Correct. About a new, well, not a new comic shop, but a, maybe a new-to-you comic shop that you visited in the Holy Land, right? You got that right. 
the Holy Land as mentioned in a Billy Joel song, not the Bible. Not quite. Close, though. Are you waiting for me to say it? Yeah, so say it, man. Oh, I thought you were going to be out, playing man. the music. I thought this was a teaser, and then you're going to do the uh, then do the music. No, I guess we're just not that professional yet. No, it's not like, like a real radio. <laughs> it's not like a real radio station where, where you know, I'm sitting here with the music, you know, with my fucking cart. What's, of, what's the name of, of the chicken uh, public radio with the really annoying voice, the old lady? Oh, Oy vey. Bethlehem, oh. Pennsylvania. That's where we're talking about. Yes, down in Bethlehem, they're <laughs> killing time. I thought you were talking about the Billy Joel song is Allentown, which yes. is near Bethlehem, but mm-hmm. not quite the same. Well, they mentioned Bethlehem in it. Down well, in Bethlehem, sure. they're killing time, filling out forms, standing in line. <laughs> and we're waiting here in Allentown. Bum, 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 bum. And you know what, smartass, in post I will put that fucking song in there. Just like I carted it up and played it. And my timing of playing it will be impeccable. <laughs> so fuck you, man. <laughs> professional. <sighs> griping about lack of professional quality. Yeah. What can I say? I did radio. I was Johnny Bueno for how many years? You're still Johnny Bueno. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of gave up the persona Johnny Bueno once I outgrew the leisure suit and the hair started falling out. <laughs> that's that's what I told goes, my old man. Yeah. Speaking that's of my That's what old I told man, the old man. He, he agreed. He completely agreed. <laughs> but um, speaking of the old man, his birthday is coming up on Wednesday. And oh, man. Uh, I actually won on eBay a raggedy old copy but still altogether issue of uh, Snatch Comics number two. Oh. And I was thinking about giving it to the old man for his birthday. <laughs> hey, don't show this to Ma, but when you gotta hit the can, read this. Now mind you, this guy just got done get, with kidney Getting your surgery. dad a little Snatch for his birthday. Oh yeah. He'll appreciate that. That's like every time a, a girl on the frisbee field makes a good catch. The appropriate thing to yell is, nice hot snatch. <laughs> is that appropriate? Um, that can be. It depends on <laughs> what team you're playing. <laughs> yeah. Like, hot snatch, Suli. Hot snatch. Hot snatch coming through. Um, and uh, just for the readers, or readers, the listeners, <laughs> or the readers who are lis- are reading our for the deaf version of Two True Freaks right now in Braille. <laughs> oh, wait. I'm just all mixed up. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> that's like they have this uh, this one type of throw in Frisbee. It's called a thumber. Mm-hmm. A thumber, hardly even know her. Whoa! <laughs> you don't even have... I'll, put, I'll, 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 I'll add all those in there. Don't worry, man. I got... I got rim shots galore, no uh, rim shot jokes either. Yeah, I but think I pointed you to the website for the rim shot. Just, just, <laughs> yeah, I think you did. Just for the <laughs> listeners' information, you know, you get a lot of stories about Scott and me and our families and stuff. But let me just tell you a little bit about Johnny Bueno's dad, and I'll, I'll just tell one story, and that's the first time I got to meet Johnny Bueno's dad, and I lived in this little shitty one-room apartment, and uh, I was going on a on a 
road trip or a plane trip with with Johnny to uh, the West Coast to do some some West Coast you know showbiz business, and, which could uh, be a fifteen minute episode on its own. On its own, and um, just the, the the arrival in Seattle is a good enough story yep. with that one. Well, anyway, you know so. Johnny was getting to the airport from work, and me, without a car, you know, he had arranged for his dad to pick me up and take me to the airport. His dad is a former cab driver. So I'm sitting on the front porch of this place, which is just off a main drag of... of downtown um, Rochester. Downtown place. Rochester. So it's a it's broad daylight. It's a pretty heavy, heavily trafficked area. You know, there's neighbors, wander, people wandering up and down the street doing, you know going about their business he pulls up in his car up onto the lawn right across the driveway and onto the lawn right up to the front stoop a K car no less <laughs> yeah but and i got my bag and everything and he sort of opens up the front door and sort of half hangs out the car and goes you ratnik and i said yep i'm your ride and i'm like i figured <laughs> and so i grab my duffel bag and head towards the car and the next thing I know, I got a pistol in my face. And he's like, you like my pistol? And, you know, <laughs> I'd heard about Johnny Bueno's dad. So I was, you know, I was trying to be cool. I just go, yeah, it's a nice pistol. And he's just like, aims it right at the ground in my feet. He goes, you want me to shoot it in the ground? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, nah, I can't do it. <laughs> and then he tried. And then on the ride over, he tried to offer me money to to take and buy Johnny a woman in, in Chinatown and in, in San Francisco. Then he says, well, you're in San Francisco. If you drop your wallet, make sure to kick it until you're out of the town limits. Ha, ha, ha. So you get to Oakland. <laughs> it's like, Dad, it's not going to help you in Oakland either. <laughs> so so there's a little history about, about you were warned. Bueno Sr. <laughs> you were warned. I warned you. He did, he did the same thing to our to our old buddy Carmen too. Ah, another one. Yeah, who who probably took it very well. Who probably would not register, you know, like an iota of shock at all when you know with with having your dad with it. Well, he's known your dad for a long time, I believe. Actually, before we went to the airport, we went to your dad's house where he showed off his stereo system to me by playing Neil Young. No, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Really, really like neighbor rattling loud. <laughs> Carmen did it. My dad did, right? Your, your dad did this, not yeah. Carmen. Yeah, that's not Carmen at all. Carmen. No, Carmen you know, sits in. The, Carmen. He used to freaking a wear snifter that. of brandy and some Frank yeah. Zappa. Yeah, pretty much. Five crap of Zappa. Anyways, <laughs> um, getting back to this whole story, we could <laughs> probably edit all that out. Um, the place is called Dreamscape Comics. It's Edit it out. It's pure gold, man. Are you kidding? <laughs> and and let me tell you, we got scads of Johnny Bueno's dad stories, some of which you never are going to hear. <laughs> uh, if you want to talk to me personally, I could tell you his opinion about Asian women and uh, that comic book I was talking about earlier that I was going to give to him. <laughs> I think we all, I think we can put two and two together with that. <laughs> so the place is called Dreamscape Comics, and it's over on uh, West Broad Street in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. 
And this is an interesting place. I, I've actually been to this place several times. Four or five years ago, I was having to go to uh, into uh, Bethlehem Allentown on pretty much a monthly basis. So I, at the time, was doing a lot of collecting of uh, cartoon-type comic books. I was uh -huh. really into, like, the Marvel Hanna-Barbera series. Oh. Um, all my favorite characters growing up as a kid were in them. It's like the only places you could find them. They had Dino Mutt. They had um, 13 cop. There's like uh, 13 issues of Laugh Olympics, um, stuff like that. There's a couple of great babes I picked up at a couple of different. I, I, there's like a. It's actually a pretty nice area in general for for comic books. I, I, there's like four or five places I found between Scranton, Allentown, and Bethlehem, PA. It's pretty. Cool. I love that Scranton. I love the name of that name <laughs> oh, of that sure. city. Yeah. Scranton, Dunder Mifflin's uh, finest, but. They, um, this place, Dreamscape Comics, I think, um, really kind of got me going on the, uh, on the underground slash alternative comic side. It's a really, really good store. And, uh, to his point with his website, this is another guy who just, he gets it. He, he not only is a, a guy who, who enjoys comics, you can see a lot, I think, a lot of people and how much they know, they enjoy about comics. By, uh, by how they set up their shops and uh, what they have in their shops especially and uh, uh, this shop is, is, re is really got it I mean you could find anything from all the latest Marvels and DCs to just you know undergrounds and alternatives he had just a little bit of everything um, he had a you know the whole left side and back side of the wall just filled with trade paperbacks lots of um, library bookstore you know um book shelving so you can have stuff on both sides uh easily where you can get around big store but not a huge store but it took me several visits to work my way through that place yeah but i mean this store this store was great because the the counter was to the far right but you walk into the middle of the store so as you walk in you see them on the on the right near the exit but basically, you have to walk around the store and to get uh, out. To get out. <laughs> that's a good. That's marketing 101. Yeah, and it's um, you know, there's just you, although who goes into a comic store and doesn't want to walk around it, you know? So uh, someone <laughs> who walks into one accidentally, I would guess. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, it, it was like. One of the first boxes I saw, he is like he has like his alternative in his underground section, kind of in the front right corner of the store. But if you're walking in the middle and you have to walk around, it's one of the first places you see. And he had this one box, and it was awesome. It was just all slave labor and fancy graphic books. Uh, and that's like right. Some of up. my favorite stuff. Yeah, that's where I picked up like all of, most of my angry youth comics that I didn't find on the West Coast and. All my Evan Dorkin milk and cheeses, and so, anyways, um, so he he had me like right right away. Um, I was like in the mood for, for alternative comics, but he had all sorts of other stuff too. He had like different degrees and stuff. Like he'd have a whole rack of just all the Vertigo stuff, you know, a whole rack of all just the Wildstorm stuff, like a bookshelf dedicated. He's all you know, all the issues were there, and you could read them, you could touch them. It was you know, I mean, he did have some long boxes on tables, but a lot of that stuff was was like stuff that you know most people don't have bagged in box like archie comics from the 70s yeah. and, and stuff like that a lot of uh 
a lot of mystic stuff. He had a small Dungeons and Dragons uh, section in there, and you know, for books. And you know, I think every smart comic shop owner does that. It's just, uh, you know, that's just a, no. It's just a <laughs> yeah. cash cow. It's just like it's just yeah. steady income. And the more you know about it, the more you can, you know, you can the more you make can yourself serve up. Your customers, right. Yeah. Right. You see a lot of places now. They have a gaming room attached to their comic shop. Um, we haven't gone through any of those yet. These have all been kind of strictly uh, comic shops, but uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. You, you, you kind of go around the, the back right wall as you walk in, and kind of like to the side and behind a little bit, but not completely behind the the, the register there. There's like there's a bunch of stuff. He always had stuff packed, you know, like. He, the first few times I was there, he had a lot of stuff he was unpacking still. I'm not sure if it was new or not, but, uh, like, I found uh, Rip Snort and Cocaine comics still on mm-hmm. the rack, number one. But it was, you know, it was, like a th- it was like he had, like, weird stuff like that all over the store. I found all sorts of uh, good underground stuff. Also, I mean, all the Civil War stuff that was coming out at the time, he had all that stuff in stock. He wasn't hoarding it. Right. To me, that's such a big plus, you know. And, yeah. You know, it's like they, they make half a million of them and they got to hoard 50 of them. This is like, good God. This is. We were talking before we started recording. I just thought this was worth mentioning. You were telling me there's a big uh, Lone Star Comics. Mile High Comics. Mile High Comics. Whoops, sorry. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> um, same area, same uh, time zone. But they're they're putting up a million dollars worth of old comics pretty soon yeah now, the this san diego is... comic con he's doing it and and i guess this guy he's had some illnesses and he's getting on in age and Chuck. i think he's he's thinking of um you know passing on his money to a, you know his estate and is thinking well it would be better to to deal with money than have them have to deal with these comics and i could sell them for more money than so there's all these and they've got a picture of him in front of all the comics, and Johnny was just pointing out, you could see all these fantastic underground comics behind him in the background, and just you can tell there's a treasure trove. And he's got a, like the highest graded Red Raven number one, one of the rarest. He's selling his Golden Age collection that he bought in '77 off this guy, this famous collection, and uh, he's got all the original spirits, and they're all CGC and all that. It's interesting. Kind of interesting what sort of grade he would get versus uh, average Joe off the right. street like you or I. Anyways, Dreamscape Comics, cool place. Make sure you ask before you open up any issues, though. Found that to be a... You gotta I tell you, I learned my lesson after that. Never assume. <laughs> never assume. Even if it's only worth two bucks, never assume, never assume, people. That's just proper comic book store etiquette. Did they come down on you like the wrath of God? Yeah, he, he he's like the most mellow guy in the world. I got a little bit of a rise out of him when I did that. <laughs> you have like, that well, effect on people, Bueno. And he's just like, what? It's like, it's like, let's trust me. I know what I'm doing. He's like, I don't care. Like, it's, a, <laughs> it's like, it's a $3 book. I don't care. Okay. So, you know, I just didn't buy as many bagged and boarded books. But it's a good thing, too, because he had so many books that, that weren't bagged and boarded. And to me, that's uh, worth the price of admission alone. Excellent. And until the next... And really back. nice, folks. His wife is really cool, too. She's very helpful. Was she nice, A nice lady. No, uh, come on, okay. man. Nice lady. Nice lady. And her, 
you know, she's there helping her husband out, working the nice comics. Nice and hot? Up. Well, you know, depends. I mean, she wasn't, you know, she was right. a, little, a little bit older than us. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I hear you. It's Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, for God's sakes. There's nothing like a hot female in a comic shop to bring people into the comic shop. I told so you that the first Whenever the I first ask you, whenever I ask you, whenever I ask you, is she hot? No matter who the girl is in the comic shop, go, oh yeah, she's hot. And then there'll be a million, you know, unless you don't want people to go to the place and then we'll say, no, she had like warts uh, all over her face but that's, and but, you know, I don't want these people coming. It's like, dude, that's my wife you're talking about. What the hell are you <laughs> Hello, ladies. Listen to your man. Now listen to me. Now listen to your man. Now listen to me. Sadly, he isn't me. But if he stopped downloading lame-ass podcasts and switched to Two True Freaks, he could learn to sound like me. Look down. Back up. Where are you? You're on the Enterprise with the man your man could sound like. What's in your hand? Back at me. I have it. It's a long box filled with comics that you love. Look again. The comics are now episodes. Anything is possible when your man listens to two true freaks and not lay masses. I'm on a tauntaun. Canadian artist. Inker, scripter, writer, author, creator, legend, God. God. A man feared and hated by the world he has sworn to draw. He is the most controversial comics figure of all. Stan Lee presents The Jocular John Byrne. Okay, we are back and we are going to get into the first proper segment of the show and we are going to be looking at some john Byrne. ah yes all right now we're going back to february 1977 the year of star wars for a wonderful 35 cent marvel comic it's x-men 109 now the um i'm assuming the cover is dave cockrum yes i didn't mm-hmm. see his name anywhere in there but it looked like it was dave cockrum and yeah. the art is Burnin Austin, of course, and Chris Claremont's writing. And um, so this is taking place immediately after the last issue. And the X-Men are, are sort of settling back in at the mansion after saving the known universe. And uh, so we, we get to see them, you know, a little interlude with each of them as they live their daily life or get adjusted back into daily life. Nightcrawlers preparing to go on a date with uh, with a hot little girly to go see Star Wars. Yeah. Professor X is shacking up with his purple girlfriend, Lalandra, for a little while, so he's he's getting happy. Storm goes up into her attic apartment with her, talks to her plants, and uh, gets naked and has a little rainstorm shower uh, <laughs> with, with, with um, strategically placed steam clouds and and storm clouds and uh gene gray uh breaks the news of her phoenixness to her parents while scott (laughs) sits in the background stewing and and 
seething in a chair. And uh, meanwhile, we see that the mysterious forces are tracking Weapon X, and we see some odd Canadian markings on their uniforms, and we're assuming they're in a plane, or but they're tracking Weapon X, and they're they're honing in on him. So, you know, Weapon X is Wolverine, so Wolverine sort of horns in on a little picnic with Storm Colossus, Banshee, and his girlfriend, Mora? Yeah, it's it's Moira McTaggart. Moira, the, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually, uh, getting back to the Irish stereotypes, says top of the morning to you in this <laughs> issue. Busted so he, lucky charms. Yeah. So they go on this. So they're they're all going on a magically delicious picnic, and Wolverine <laughs> sort of horns in on it, and they're like, "Well, you don't want to go on a picnic." And he's like, "Well, I just want to go play play tag with some deer," which I guess Wolverine likes to do. So. uh so as they're having their picnic, Wolverine's off on his own, and he sees a young doe, and he's sneaking up on it, but he notices it's distracted, and it's not distracted by him. When all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he's attacked by his former teammate, James Hudson, or Weapon Alpha, and he's coming to take Wolverine back, and he has some kind of new power suit that makes him stronger more impervious and he can actually even fly much to Wolverine's jealousy. So it's a pretty even match as they beat the shit out of each other and uh, <laughs> talk tough until the fight sort of spills into the other four's bucolic picnic and uh, the other three mutants uh, pretty much run Alpha right off. He's out of his league when all of a sudden there's three people with superpowers beating on him and he just basically disappears into thin air and uh but in the in the in the short battle they had Moira is is hit by one of his power beams and his her face or neck is sort of burned and they have to get her to some some uh medical treatment because she's unconscious and burnt so Wolverine pretty much predicts the hitting of uh the, the typical fan by feces in the very near future and that's <laughs> where we pretty much leave it off it's a it's a pretty fast read it's it's just a fun it's a i i like the stuff where they're just sort of you know doofing around the the x mansion i love the idea of having your own little secret hideout so i li- like seeing everybody you know just sort of hanging out in there mm-hmm in their quote-unquote normal lives and <laughs> which which you know and you know we we have the we have the 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 scenes of storm getting naked and at, at one point you know being pissed off at the picnic that she can't be naked because that's yeah. pretty much how storm likes to be all the time and everybody else is an uptight american although they aren't they're uptight russians and they're all <laughs> kinds of uptight people but Everybody's more uptight than her, obviously. And hey, man, if I was an X Men, I would have vibed with her, with her thing, man. I would have said, "Hey, I know, I'll go hang out naked with you." <laughs> be real, man. I'm it's sure you would. It's being real. I'll go talk to your plants. That sounds like fun. Let's go talk to them naked together. Now, yeah. I, uh, 
I like this issue a lot. I really, because like you say, it you know it really is a quick read, but because uh, it's fun. It is. It's fun. It moves really fast, and and a, uh, and a good part of it's sort of taken up with uh, a recap of the last <laughs> issue. You know, as was the sort of style in these days. There's a lot of there's like another scene. You know, there's a little a few flashbacks where they basically tell the same story, but maybe add a couple little incidents i'm really impressed with their um stargate that looks yeah. just like stargate's stargate <laughs> in 1977 so that's pretty cool Take well that on that subject is of 1977 i you know it really hit me in this issue when we get to the part where uh oh where was it star wars yeah it was on page 10 where um, Kirk comes to ask Peter if he wants to go with them, you know, and wants to go on a double date. And he says, we're going to see Star Wars. And my first thought was, oh, he must mean Empire. But for whatever reason, I flipped back to the beginning to look at the date. And I was like, wow, he really means Star Wars. You know, this is the thing is that I, I think of this era, you know, th- this X-Men. With, later. With, yeah, as being the 80s. Because this is, you know, when, when people talk about, you know, classic 80s stuff, this always gets brought up. And wow, this is really, this is much earlier than, than what I'm thinking it, it is. You know, this is, you know, late, uh, late That's 70s. That's why we're covering so. it, man, because it's ahead of its time. It is. It really is ahead of its time. You know, with it has a, a perfect blend of giving the characters downtime, which is something you just didn't see much, you know? You might see Clark Kent, you know, go to the office for, you know, three panels and talk to Perry White or something. But then it was right back into the big supervillain plot and then Superman going out and punching the bad guy in the head or whatever. You, you didn't get a lot of this character interaction. And a lot of this issue is nothing but that. It's, you know, it's not boring or anything. Don't take me wrong, but it's it's a lot of talk. It's a lot of, you know, get to know your characters kind of thing. It's a lot of personal interaction. And then... But it's also a perfect blend of over-the-top superhero fight at the end of it when uh, when Weapon Alpha comes to collect Wolverine. Then you get into the big scrap. And even during that sequence, you know, we, we cut back to the, you know, the uh, four at the picnic just kind of hanging out and talking. And then, you know, the, the fight spills into their area and then it turns into one huge fight. But it's just, I love the way it's paced like that. So... You're getting both of those comic book styles, both the, you know, talky character stuff and just, you know, let's tear a bunch of shit up battle. It's really cool. And it's the classic. Why is Wolverine always fighting his, his friends? <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's always like, ah, oh, my old friend, I'm going to have to beat the shit out of you. Bring it on, you know, and they talk tough to each other and beat the hell out of each other. What's funny, too, is that nine times out of ten, I've noticed, anyway, now, I'm not the biggest Wolverine fan or reader, but what I have read of him, I, I think he's really funny in the aspect of, you know, in later years, it seems like he could not make an appearance where he didn't say, I'm the best there is at what I do. But it seemed like the best that he was, you know, the thing he was best at was getting his ass kicked. The only time he ever seems to win against somebody is if it's one of his friends he's fighting. He might be able to take them down, but when it's like a supervillain or something, it seems like he's always getting owned. It's pretty funny. But, yeah, you know, you, uh... 
started out talking about the cover on this and it really did shock me that I like it so much because, you know, I'm not the biggest Dave Cockrum fan, but this is a great cover on this one. I really like this. And I it think might be, the inking is adding a little bit of uh, yeah, rounding it out a little bit because well, it's consistent. It's it's doesn't look like the art inside, but it's consistent enough with it to. I think a lot of it, too, is uh, I keep wanting to call this guy Vindicator, but he wasn't Vindicator yet. At this point, he's just Weapon Alpha, but he he later becomes Vindicator. I love this outfit. I always have. It's it's really simple in its design, but it just works. It's really cool. It's like a mixture of, like, like Batman and Captain Canuck or something. It's really cool. It's like, yeah, it's it's like the Captain America of Canada. Yeah. The Captain Canada outfit, you know, it's just, it's the maple leaf. <laughs> yeah. I really, I, I've always thought he had a really cool, uh, really cool outfit. I also caught another thing in here. I'm not sure what page it is now. Let me see if I can find it real quick. But uh, there was a colloquialism in here that I'd kind of forgotten about that, you know, we don't really hear it anymore, but back at this time it would have been, you know, it just really brought me back to like, I was like, wow, that that's the way people really did talk. Oh, here it is. It's on page, page 14. Um, Nightcrawler is talking to, uh, to Cyclops and he's trying to get through to him about whatever the hell his point is. And then Banshee walks in and inviting them to come on a picnic and Kurt thinks to himself, he says, blast you, Sean. He says, your timing rots. And I'm thinking, man, we totally used to say rots. Remember? And yeah. That was before I sucks. Heard, you know? I haven't heard anybody say rots in a long time. Yep. And when sucks came into into play, that's when, like, the religious kids would stick to rots. Because yep. I remember David Shell like, stuck Yep, firmly to rots, you know. As oh, I never let my mother hear me say than sucks. sucks. Yeah, because yeah. sucks wasn't as sucks wasn't as uh, as approved of colloquialism as it is now. You know, yep. if you said this sucks in class, you could get, depending on the teacher, you could get in a lot of trouble. As I, our music teacher, as I learned when I went by Mr. Nichols' room one day, went, Nichols sucks, and turned around and there he was. <laughs> Was not happy. I think back in those days, especially if it was an older teacher, I think they thought you were calling them gay, which <laughs> really upset them, which you weren't, but they didn't understand that either. It's just like now when like a teenager's calling something gay, he's not saying that it's homos- homosexual. Right. But, but like, you know, like people our age are like, well, what? <laughs> How can that be homosexual? It's an object. But, uh, yeah. I, yeah, I, I I noticed that too, and there's also Wookies are name dropped too yep. in here, which is awesome. I caught a caught a little bit of a, I don't know what you call it, not a typo, but just like a, a flub. Somebody somebody forgot what the hell was uh, being going said. on. Yeah, going I, on. At one yeah, point. I saw that too. Where the hell is it here? It is on page. Oh, it's right at the end. It's the next to last panel of the story where Banshee and Storm are kind of patrolling the sky trying to find out where the hell Weapon Alpha disappeared to. And uh, Banshee says, come on, Storm, we're wasting time up here. And she says, I agree, my friend. Banshee's signaling us back to the lake. And I'm thinking, you're talking to Banshee. (laughs) (laughs) So 
thought that was funny. Whoops. And uh, I love that uh, that Weapon Alpha says something. Where is it here? Oh, he says, but I'll be back, X-Men, once I've found out who you all are. And he says, next time, to equalize the odds, I'll bring Alpha Flight with me. So it was a nice little foreshadowing of what was coming. And I'm trying to remember, it has been so long since I've read this material. But don't we end up seeing... I mean, I know Alpha Flight comes back at some point and there's a big brawl. But then in, in the actual Alpha Flight series don't we end up getting either this confrontation or the later alpha flight confrontation? We get it again from like their perspective. I think I don't remember. Gosh, I can't remember either. So a long time yeah, ago, I, long time since I read those comics. I read all of them too. Yeah. Right? Alpha flights or, and I imagine we'll get to those actually someday on this show. Oh yeah. I'm looking forward awesome. to it. It's literally been 20 years because I was buying and reading all that. I can remember very distinctly being on guard duty, you know, in, on evenings when I was in the service, sitting in my little gate shack, trying not to freeze to death and reading Alpha Flight. So, yeah, it's it's been that long. <laughs> that was I've been out 20 years, so it's been that long. But, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that because I, I, I'm, I'm, I know that there's at least one issue of Alpha Flight that has a cover by Burn that's playing off of the cover to this issue where it's Weapon Alpha and Wolverine fighting each other. And I want to say that it's this issue told from um, Hudson's point of view, but I, I can't remember if it's actually this battle or if it's the later Alpha Flight battle. I, I just can't recall, but looking forward to it one way or the other. But yeah, love this issue. Burns art, fantastic in this one. It's uh, although I did notice a lot of stock. Um, you know, if this was a movie, you'd call it stock footage or whatever. But a lot of stock poses uh. in the part with uh, with Weapon Alpha, the way he flies in some of the panels and stuff. Um, you would see this later on in Burns' run on Superman. Superman flies a lot of the same, a lot of the same kind of poses, like the one where uh, on page twenty-two, where he's flying above Wolverine and Wolverine saying, "Oh, cripes, you can fly." Yeah, that pose right there—that's Superman. We would see that in Superman by Byrne, and then the panel below that, where he's like got his fist doubled up and he's charging at Wolverine out of the sky. Again, classic like Superman style. But so a lot of a lot of Burns guys fly, in, you know, in a similar way. Even uh, what's his name, Banshee. Um, not in this issue, but I noticed a, an issue or two ahead where I was peeking ahead a little bit. He uh, he does that same sort of sideways shot of him flying, just like uh, Weapon Alpha is in this one. But that's pretty much all I got. Uh, what else did you have on this one? Well, there is one more important thing in this issue. Oh yeah, we got and... the we got the ads. Well, before we get to the big one, I found one that I think you'll get a kick out of on the inside back cover, or excuse me, uh, inside front cover rather. We got one of those classic ads for like a million different cheesy things that you could buy like monster record and rubber masks and all this stuff but if you look on the right hand side there's a thing with spy it's star trek patches and it shows spock doing like the live long and prosper in star trek but under that it says star trek vulcan ears and it's got a picture 
that looks like a cross <laughs> between Ming the Merciless yeah. and a Skrull. And I'm like, yeah, they're Vulcaneers if, you know, Spock was a Skrull. <laughs> so. It doesn't look like the guy's very happy with his Vulcaneers either. He's very <laughs> frowny. Yes. He's got an Eddie Munster hairdo, and yeah, he is. He looks like, damn it, why is mom making me wear these stupid ears? Yeah. <laughs> what else do we have? Oh, got stupid sea monkeys. I like the one for the uh, complete Marvelous collection here. We got, like, uh, 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 what is it called? The Origins of Marvel Comics. Son, Son of Origins. How I've to Draw a... Marvel. I've got How to Draw Comics in Marvel Way somewhere. Oh, do you? Yeah, I got that for Christmas one year. I've got um, the Origins of Marvel Comics, and I got the Sons of Origins, but I, I never have been able to track down the other because there was that one that was all bad guys. Uh-huh. And it was the one that was all women, the women of... Bring on the bad guys, it yeah. was called. Yeah, I never have been able to track those down, but I've got the other two. I actually got them for a birthday present one year. But uh, yeah, You can sell grit. It's got the... <laughs> we got a great ad for Migos. Got Conan, Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, Spider Man, and Hulk. I had all of these except for Conan and Iron Man. And I immediately lost Thor's hammer like five minutes out of the package. Nice. <laughs> so he was pretty much useless. What else do we got? Classic posters. I think that's the, about the, the 50 mile binoculars that you always knew were. <laughs> um... That had to be just too good to be true. There's no way, except they were an expensive item in the comics. They were they're like four ninety eight for those goddamn binoculars. Fifty mile power binoculars. That was a lot of money back then too. This binocular has genuine ground crystal lenses. Don't confuse with models having cheap plastic lenses. <laughs> it's a good look at like the next door neighbor's daughter getting undressed or whatever yeah free shoulder strap i'm surprised it does have a picture of some kid in a tree like looking at some girl in a bra like (laughs) they did stuff like that yeah yeah, i know it yeah i know uh, the one for the x-ray classes usually showed him looking through like some woman's dress or something now this is a swanky little perk here a deluxe morocco grain zippered carrying case available you just know what a crappy piece of shit that was <laughs> in, in reality when it would come in the mail, you know? Oh. I am very uncomfortable with the uh, the Michael Landon-looking bodybuilder with his junk hanging out on the previous ad, though. That one I don't like at all. I want to send you my free muscle-building lessons with my compliments. Yeah, and <laughs> your sweaty G-string, too, it looks like. You, you weirdo. I want to come over and touch you. My muscles just got bigger and bigger, all due to Olympic muscle builders. I cannot thank you enough. Jeff Williams, Washington. (laughs) But the Olympic muscle builders course gave me a new life of muscle strength and fitness. Thanks, Rick Dayton, Brooklyn, New York. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll flip that couple of pages. Wait, Scott, imagine... Walking through your local beach or neighborhood swimming area, friends noticing your titanic legs, your wide, manly shoulders, rock-hard stomach muscles, and last but not least, your full high-peaked biceps that attract second glances from all. From all! Oh, shit, I get that now anyway. Isn't this the kind of respect and admiration you want? Isn't it? 
isn't it? <laughs> Take advantage of this genuine no obligation officer. <laughs> officer. Officer. <laughs> Episode 21. <laughs> anyway, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, <laughs> to distract us from our main goal where we're oh headed here. Oh my god, this one here. Okay. How do we first bite of this all, one off there? Yeah, well, first sport. of all, we, we have to bite it off with, with a bit of a, a, a pre-thing. I hope that uh, I hope that our, our buddy Michael Bailey appreciates <laughs> this because he's gonna he's either gonna love this or he's gonna hate it. He's gonna be super jealous because we have been waiting over on uh, Tales of the JSA for this particular ad to come up forever because we've been covering hostess ads whenever they come up. And it just never seemed to come along. And then, wouldn't you know it, here it just happens to be in this issue of X-Men. Oh, my God. This is the the creme de la creme <laughs> of hostess ads. This is Thor. Oh, it's, it's a honker. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right. Here, here's what I want to do. I'm going to be Thor. I'll, I'll basically, I'll do the Asgardians if you want to do the rednecks, because I think you do a much funnier redneck than I do. Does that I will, work? I will. I will read all the all the rednecks and uh, <laughs> and before we start, because in post I'm going to be adding, you know, dramatic like pitching my voice so you can tell the difference. But the redneck characters, you've got like a granny who looks like Aunt May with her teeth out in the glass by the side of the bed. She's like a toothless Aunt May, and she's like the leader. And so you got these, uh, red, what are they're two redneck cousins, right? There's uh. <laughs> I don't know what cousin cousin by and cousin B, and uh, so you'll be those will be the three redneck characters that you'll you'll be hearing. They refer to each other by name, so <laughs> so those are who you're dealing with here. Now, should I set up what this first panel looks like before we start reading? Well, let, let me let me read the just the the header on this one. This is Thor in the Dingling family. I am not making that up. <laughs> okay, set up the first panel. All right, so you've obviously got Thor and the Asgardians are in some sort of Viking wooden ship, as Vikings are wont. Well, when the redneck <laughs> attack a Viking ship, what do they attack it with? Well, obviously it looks like a boxcar of some kind that they're piling out of. Or maybe their own, you know, their redneck... It doesn't look like a redneck shack or anything. It doesn't have, like, the wood. So it looks like they're, like, piling out of a boxcar and store... You know, and of course they've got the shabby hats and the and the overhauls and... and oh, my the God. Granny's got her hair back in a bun and waving her fist. So and they're, and they're also in space, too, it looks like. <laughs> yes. You know, so as that's... if the concept of a space-faring Viking ship wasn't by itself a silly enough concept, then you've got them being attacked by... <laughs> See, I always thought this was supposed to be a Winnebago. Like, they were in a Winnebago. Oh, yeah, well... <laughs> I don't, but I don't know. <laughs> but it said, the caption on this says, By some mysterious quirk of space and time warp, the Dingling family is thrust into Thor's Asgardian, Asgardian orbit. The family leaves a trail of evil doing on Earth. I would love to know what what is that. <laughs> I'm not even. I'm not even going to go with it. Uh. Grandma Dingling leads them in swooping silently up 
behind the Asgardians. Now, she's swooping up silently. They're actually jumping out with their musket guns in their hand, and she's yelling and waving her fists, so that's swooping up silently. <laughs> so, she's saying, Let's get them all, Ken! Capture them, or our name's not Dingling! So Thor says, We know not what provoketh thee, strange family, but if thou dost come amongst us with unpleasantness in thy hearts, and Volstag stand and he says, With unpleasantness, I can't talk. With unpleasantness, thou shalt be met. And then Balder says, And then some. <laughs> Granny chimes in with, By Cranky, that pretty yellow haired fella's a leader. Let's hornswoggle him and the rest will be a piece of cake. Okay, Pa, Ma, Annie, sister, brother, cousin, B, and Bye, and Grandma, all you dinglings. Hold him still so I can get a bead on him with my atomic shotgun. Thy familiar band. (laughs) 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 Thor is swinging his hammer and batting these guys around, and they're all clinging on to him, and he says, Thy familiar familial bonds are indeed strong. Oh yeah. Pity pity tis misspent on evil, but tis not before the fierce power of the mystic mallet Mjolnir. But what's this? The cousins they calleth B and Bai resisteth the hammer. Hee hee ha ha cousin Bai, I think we got him. Sure enough, cousin B, it's our cousin power, secret weapon. Nothing can resist it except when our hands wander a bit and we lose concentration and we goof it up ourselves. <laughs> it's our cousin power, secret weapon. What the fuck? <laughs> uh, seriously, WTF, guys. It's, what it's, the fuck? It's the power of, of Alabama hands. It's, uh, yeah, it's uh, miss. <laughs> It's our power missing chromosomes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so then this girl, I think this is Sif, comes in and she says, I then, tis but child's play to use this ploy and distract the cousins B and by, and by and by twill be their undoing. Irma, mm-hmm. Look at that, cousin by. Er, cousin B, what were we saying? Oh, look at that delicious hostess. Fruit pies, apple, and... Ah, I like putting mustard on it, too. (laughs) Cherry, great, light, tender crust. Real fruit filling. Cousin Bai, I can't recollect what we were talking about, but it couldn't be half as interesting as this mouth-watering hostess pie. You fools! We almost had that yellow-haired one in our power, dumb cousins! Forsooth, my lady, not so dumb. They knoweth yon delicious snack. <laughs> and then Balder and Sif are going, Now home to Odin, be sure to save some hostess fruit pies for that great one to enjoy. <laughs> and they say it in unison. What the fuck? Do people just... Do, is that what the, the, the Norse gods do, is just speak... Like product placement in oh unison. My God, there is so much wrong with this ad. I mean, well, as you pointed out, Thor pretty much does refer to their 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 inbred nature. 
Yes. <laughs> in the yeah, roundabout. he pretty much calls them out as, as inbred hillbillies. Yeah, as he about does. as close as you can in the 1977 <laughs> fruit pie ad. He's much, much nicer about it than I am when I'm cut off in traffic, for example, and call him a bunch of fucking inbred redneck douchebags. So. That's basically what he's saying in Thor's speak. When they silently swoop up behind you and with their boxcar. I'd swear it's a boxcar. It might be. Maybe they're ripping on boxcar Willie a little bit. You know, I don't even know that this thing Actually, with the tinglings is the worst part about this. The, the thing that disturbs me the most is that maybe I'm wrong. I, I won't profess to know everything about Norse mythology, but am I correct in, in assuming that at one time this was an actual religion, right? People actually believe. Yes, they, people people worship these gods, and there's just, well, I'm sure a few so people a, who still do. So in a couple hundred years, could there potentially be like a hostess fruit pie ad where they're going, okay, let's go home to Jesus and uh, save some fruit pies for Jesus, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That would be a, I guess I, that would be taken as offensive, but luckily there's just not as many like worshipers of Asgard to get offended in 1977. In 1977, I don't think people got offended as yeah. easily. Yeah, no, as they did you not. Because, uh, I, mean, I mean, yeah, we've seen stuff that's been flat-out offensive to us, and that's saying something. <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't Pa, I guess it's Pa, the the big guy, Does he, he sort of looks like Alan Moore a little bit. Maybe this is an Alan Moore, <laughs> early Alan Moore appearance. <laughs> He's like somebody oh dressed God. up, dressed up. Alan, to, uh, they took Alan Moore's hat and they like did the comical like blew up the top of it with a shotgun because it's like the hat that he wears. And then they put him in some stock like here, put on this uh, this plaid shirt and these overalls with the patch in them and hold the shotgun. Holy shit! I never even noticed the dude that looks like Wyatt Earp that's clinging on to Thor's leg in that second panel right there. Yeah, I know. Just noticed that dude. He's clinging on. He's clinging on for dear life, man. He's he's a little too close to Thor's junk. Both those cousins are. They're, 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 <laughs> godly. Both of them. Both of them, both of them have got their hands way too close to Thor's <laughs> junk, man. But they're inbred cousins. Those, you know, they they don't. You know, they don't act like normal people. Oh my god. That was hysterical. You get a big. I, I literally had tears running bite. down my face. I was laughing so hard. God. It's just <laughs> Thor with the Dingling family. There you go. And uh, uh that's about all I got. I mean, that, how are we gonna yeah, top I, that? I'm spent after that. <laughs> all right. Oh, what do we got next? The swamp thing. That's what's next. Yes. We'll come back with with oh the anatomy lesson. The Saga of the Swamp Thing. All right, we are back, and it's time to go back to the swamp with Saga of the Swamp Thing number 21 from February 1984. 75 cents. And it's got a beautiful cover, classic cover by Tom Yates. And the art inside is by the awesome 
Steve Bissett and John Totalbaum. So uh, we'll get it. This is uh, the anatomy lesson, probably the most, arguably, you know, with his origin, the most famous Swamp Thing story issue ever, maybe. So anyway, so uh, Sunderland, uh, uh, his scientist, baffled by the corpse of the Swamp Thing, springs Dr. Woodrow, the Floronic Man, from prison. Uh, since Woodrow's half-man, half-plant scientist, um, Sunderland figures he may have the insight it takes to figure the mystery of the Swamp Thing out because yeah, they found traces in Holland's wife and in, in the corpse of the Swamp Thing of the biorestorative fluid, but it doesn't seem to have done anything or affected anybody at all. So they're wondering... You know what? What the hell's going on? So, um, um, unfortunately for Sunderland, it turns out that Woodrow is the guy who can figure this out. So Woodrow, uh, Woodrow discovers that the Swamp Thing is actually not even Alec Holland, but as uh, it's so well put, a ghost dressed in weeds. Um, Holland's consciousness, it seems, has actually grown the Swamp Thing. Because in the trauma of his death, um, he didn't even believe himself dead. He still thought he was alive in some way, like a ghost, perhaps. And uh, he sort of compares it to these planarian worms that would eat other planarian worms that had learned how to go through a maze. And after eating the ground-up worms that had learned how to go through the maze, all of a sudden they could go through the maze, too. And he was sort of comparing it to that, like the synchronistic melding of the swamp and Alec Holland's consciousness made something that thought it was Alec Holland. And so he tried to make a skeleton like a person and internal organs, but they're all just sort of leafy, you know, fakes. They're all just echoes of the real thing and they're... they're not even functional organs they're just sort of representations made out of bark and cellulose so um you know with with this information now uh Sunderland being the you know evil overlord of of the evil Sunderland corporation immediately fires Woodrow and uh plans to have his scientists just sort of take it from there and uh, Woodrow, who's very smart, half-man, half-plant, f- sort of foresaw this and uh, sort of planned out his revenge. He's gotten into Woodrow, or into Woodrow's, into uh, Sunderland's computer that controls his complex and, and set the frozen swamp thing to thaw out because as Woodrow tried to explain to Sunderland, it's a plant. You can't shoot a plant in the head and kill it. You know, you can freeze it, but eventually it's going to grow back. Um, but Sunderland just sort of poo-poos him before he can tell him that. So, so he leaves Sunderland just sort of trapped in his own giant factory of his own making, his high-tech factory. And uh, the Swamp Thing grows back from his dry ice tomb and uh, um, immediately, you know, finds his way to Sunderland's lab and reads Woodrow's report, you know, telling him basically that Alec Holland is dead and that you know who knows what he is but he's not Alec Holland and that 
precise moment, Sunderland, you know, walks in and sees that the Swamp Thing has seen this, and the Swamp and the Swamp Thing is just unhinged. He's crazed and chases Sunderland down and just sort of picks him up and smothers him by just holding him into his chest of just pushing his face into his chest and uh meanwhile Woodrow's sitting in Washington D.C. sipping wine waiting and plotting something and man I you know no synopsis that I could write can do justice to how this story is told in in this issue because it's sort of told non-linearly as far as time goes which was ahead of its time in 1984 it was sort of foreseeing like Pulp Fiction and stuff like that Quentin Tarantino stuff and uh, oh man what a what a beautifully drawn beautifully written issue no wonder this is held in such high regard and really sort of considered the beginning of Alan Moore's run of Swamp Thing it's just such a great melding of writing and and art and such a insanely powerful story you know I mean this blew my mind as a kid when I read this just blew my mind I could not you know I had not seen a comic I've you know and I'd been reading like some heavy metal and more quote unquote adult stuff but this was more deep that you know the adult stuff was like more swearing in TNA right this is this gave you some stuff to chew on yeah, <laughs> like the nature of what the swamp thing actually is and then you realize holy shit that's fucked up and then you start thinking you know what that's really cool it's way cooler than just like a guy soaked in you know than just the weird superhero sort of beginning that he had this one has a little more metaphysical weirdness to it you know and has a, a little something more to say about the nature of the universe or questions to it's just great it's a great idea and it gets it he goes deeper into it as this goes on too to fascinating results but oh my god the the, the shot of the swamp thing with his eyes you know one pupil dilated and one eye big and red and bloodshot just looking at Sunderland that's like, the, so yeah. you read the report did you like it <laughs> and his eyes are just like it, the only thing I've seen comparable is a couple months ago when we were doing that Walking Dead with Rick <laughs> and the cover in the straight jacket yeah yeah I, I this completely blew me away when I read it for the first time because it, it is really powerful you because know, I followed Swamp Thing, you know, through the original series and all that, and his quest to regain his humanity, you know, that was what was really, if there's, you know, if there could be said to be one driving thing or recurring thing in the original series, which is really the first series is more of a, you know, monster of the week mashup type of deal. But if there was one common thing that seemed to run through the story kind of in the background, it was, you know, Swamp Thing constantly pining for and trying to regain his lost humanity. And what I love about this is that this was the game changer. This is where he finds out that that's never going to happen because he never even was Alec Holland. 
not even to begin with it ain't even yeah. happening yeah so it's ever. not going to happen and this panel you know this page you're talking about i just happen to be at the same exact page i think this is the best it's really it's two pages it's pages 18 and 19 i think this is the best moment of this entire issue because you know now swamp thing has learned his true nature what he truly is and instantly whether he realizes it or not now that he realizes he never was human or or anything you know connected to alec holland really suddenly it's like all bets are off and swamp thing who you know he's hard to define but i guess you could arguably call him a hero you know, almost arguably call him a superhero, at least the you way call he's him been a good guy. At least. Yeah, a good yeah. guy. Uh, you know, up to this point, he's been a good guy. You know, he you know, he's shared adventures with Batman and Superman. He's lived in that world. Now, suddenly he snaps. He's not human anymore. OK, I'm not going to be held by human morality anymore. And he murders this guy. And I love it. I mean, it's, it's complete. You can tell. I mean, not not only did the dynamic of the character instantly change, but the dynamic of where the book was going to go changes. Everything changes right here. And I think a lot of it changes, you know, not just with the realization of, of what he now is and never was, but just the, the thing where we'll see this play out over the, the course of the Alan Moore run of him becoming less and less human minded if you know what i mean he he starts to slowly yeah. lose touch with human morality and become more about you know what he becomes about in the future i don't want to spoil too much but all of that starts right here in my opinion with his murder of sunderland you know the fact that he doesn't have any qualms about just taking this guy out. You know, he doesn't do the superhero thing of, you know, I've got to take the higher moral ground or I've got to go. He's just about to kill him and just goes, I can't do it. Yeah. No, he does punishment to let you live. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't. He he extinguishes him. Yeah. Yeah. There's no throwing him into Arkham to escape later or, you know, whatever, leaving him on the police, you know, the police headquarters doorstep. It's just, I'm killing you. And that's that was that's what I take away from this. That well, to me is the most powerful moment of this is when he he makes that decision, and he's completely mm-hmm. maniacal about it. Well, he doesn't have a single line of dialogue, internal or external. Just rah! Ah, uh, yeah. He doesn't say a word. All of it. That uh, Woodrow is sort of his proxy. Woodrow's like an evil plotting version, saying ah. This whole story is told, this whole scene is told through Woodrow is sitting back wondering, you know, I wonder how, you know, because he knows the Swamp Thing's going to come back to life as soon as he reads that file that he's going to kill Sunderland. And really, Sunderland killed Alec Holland and has been trying to kill the Swamp Thing ever since. So it's self-defense, but he just cold-bloodedly chases him down and kills him. But... Um, so it's all told from Woodrow, you know, sitting in Washington, D.C., sipping his wine, which is a really weird thing for a plant to be drinking the fermented blood of other plants. Well, he's <laughs> half plant and half human, so I'm sure Alan Moore had thought of that. <clears throat> and, you know, he's saying, I wonder if he's, there's going to be a lot of blood, but he knows what the outcome is. 
So his wondering is sort of superimposed over the whole scene of Swamp Thing chasing him down and the reality of the scene, which is really pretty much dialogue. There's just that dialogue where, you know, he first meets Sunderland and Sunderland just sort of lamely tries to worm out of it and <laughs> Swamp Thing snaps. And it's and it's beautiful. There's my favorite thing in this is there's been this whole running gag with Sunderland and his plans, and he has one of those little executive clackers. And um, as he does his plan, there's always close-ups of this clacker click-clacking. And when the Swamp Thing finally overturns the desk and is going after him, you see the clackers just going all out. You know, Sunderland's plans going askew, and and uh, in every clacker is a reflection yeah. slightly different reflection of Sunderland screaming and then as Swamp Thing chases him down the hallway he's running down the hallway and above him are all these hanging lamps that look just like the clackers yes and they're all hanging over him and on those are reflected Swamp Thing's face and are the Swamp Thing coming after him and that's just it's like the two sides of his fate they're on opposite sides a lot of these pages have sort of mirroring, you know, on the two-page spread, there'll be a mirror from the right side or the left side. Right. Lots of close-ups of eyes. And here's where I'm going to get literate on your ass, man. It's just all these shots of one eye. There's even one shot on page dippity-pidoo 15 of Woodrow um, where he's just sort of cackling and takes up a whole quarter of the page and a frame has just been made out of one of his eyes right and uh, I think this is a big tribute to uh, Pose the Telltale Heart because it starts out with him talking about the old man and how he's you know started hating the old man and it's just like the Telltale Heart where the old man's eye was driving the guy crazy and he eventually kills him and what, puts him under the floor. And uh, But it was his eye that drove him nuts. And there's just all these close-ups of single eyes or eyes singled out or one eye is bigger than the other or eyes in general. It's eyes, eyes, eyes everywhere. So I think there's a little Telltale Heart floating around in this. Could very well be. The art is just gorgeous. Yeah. I love the reanimated Swamp Thing's look. Yeah. Because he's no longer, you know, he, he up to this point, he'd always looked like uh, like he was covered in a layer of, like, swamp moss. You know, it's like, like, like if you touched him, he'd be, like, Rubbery. wet and slick to, uh -huh. to touch. Or at least that's the way I envisioned it. This here is all... You know, it's like he's he's made out of like mold and fungus and stuff. You know, he's he's all curly and you know shaggy. shaggy yeah, it's almost like uh, what is that that Spanish moss? He's got yeah. some, like Spanish moss coming off him. Yeah, he's he's definitely more plant. He's being drawn more in the plant side. And uh, oh my Cause, god, because that panel on page. 17 at the bottom where 
Sunderland walks in and there's a great use of negative space and black where Swamp Thing almost looks he, he looks almost like a like a reanimated corpse or like a ghost. Yeah, half and you rotted. can yeah, you can see through him and everything, just the way his body is made up. It's it's he's just growing back, right? yeah. yeah. He's, he's in the process yeah. of it's, you it's can see awesome. sort of like roots that are like hanging loose that are probably gonna like grip onto part of his back and knit, you know, knit themselves in. Yeah. Ugh. It's classic old, it's like the art is like classic old EC art in some ways in the in the Bernie Wrightson but the way that the panels are laid out and and that stuff it's, it's actually, it's more um, you know I, I don't want to say it's revolutionary cause it, but it, but it because it reminds me of Will Eisner, in a lot of ways, you know. The you know where where there's, I don't think there's the same panel layout, <laughs> from any page to the others, but they reflect back on themselves. There's lots of tilty angles and strange frames, but it's all done for, you know, not just to be pretty or to be, um, tricky or anything like that. It's it's just done to enhance the story to make a point it's just awesome 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 I'm so psyched we're going to be doing this for months and months for over a year (laughs) going through this because I haven't read these in so so many years it's going to be so enjoyable it's going to be a fight not to get too far ahead of the shows reading it we're coming up on some that I've never read, so I'm really looking forward to that Ooh. because the, the the very next issue, I'm not sure if I've ever read. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this because at some point prior to more taking over, I, I quit the book and didn't come back in until there'd been all the hubbub, you know, and, and, and Alan Moore had lit the comics world on fire and all that. That's when I came back, and I'm not even sure what issue that was, but it was quite a ways down the road. So I've been spending all these years in between hunting down all these issues that I missed, and I've got just about all of them now, but some of them I still, to this day, have not read. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um one of the things I really liked about this issue, and this will become much more evident later on in a, in a story that's coming along, and not too many issues down the road, but I think Alan Moore, present day, I think he takes a lot of crap from the fan community. And one of the things that drives me a little bit crazy is revisionist history about Moore. And this, there seems to be this this thing out there where people think that he you know, hates superheroes and, you know, that, that like the Watchmen. Obviously not true. Yeah, it's not because you can tell just in this story right here that it's steeped in his knowledge of what was going on in DC. The Floronic Man, I mean, that's pretty obscure for him to pull that up. The guy's, you know, well-written, written in character. He draws upon a lot of, uh, of DC lore with that. And I like the fact that, um, there's even a reference made, you know, it's, it's, there's not like an editor's footnote or anything, but there's a reference made to the fact that they had to spring, um, Woodrue from where he was in order to be able to use him for this story. And that uh-huh. comes right out of, uh, 
Justice League of America 195 through 197, something that Michael and I just talked about not long ago over on Tales of the JSA. My, uh, Woodrue was a part of that story, and at the end of it, he wound up in limbo with the whole rest of the other villains. That's where he that's his prior appearance to this. So I, I like that, you know, that, that more, you know, he, he obviously he, knew what he was talking about with these characters and, and showed them great respect and, and, oh, and he, used he, them. He, he, adds, he adds to them mm-hmm. without screwing them up. I mean, the Swamp Thing, you know, this is a, this is a big time reboot, re-envisioning or whatever, big d- change in the whole Swamp Thing thing, but it's, it doesn't come off as being gimmicky. Right. You know, I mean, uh, there's definitely an element of like him going, I want to add an element of this that that that's different and I want to change this. But the element really puts depth and maturity uh, on a level that nobody ever would have expected. Right. On it. And he does the same thing. At not He doesn't actually change really as much, but he does definitely deepen in some way every dc character that what steps into the swamp thing and as time goes on more and more of them do and they always end up being intriguing without being without him walking all over the character and that really right. says something that says that exactly shows his knowledge and i mean his his eagerness to approach these characters means that he's probably been sitting in britain just waiting for a chance to write all these guys. And, yeah. and the Swamp Thing is like, oh, okay, I get to, you know, may, uh, maybe I'm going to take a little crack at the Phantom Stranger here, you know. And when the Phantom Stranger does show up, it's, like, really cool. Whereas before it was just like, all right, well, this is padding out the right. end of this. So, yeah. and Yeah, there's a great economy of, of words and and dialogue in this story that's one of the things i really like about it is uh yeah it's a marked change from where we were with marty pascal who just threw everything and the kitchen sink at us in his issues where it was just like overload to where this one is a powerful punch in the stomach tale that's really i mean you can read it quick i mean it's you know there like i say there's an economy of words in this one and i really like that he gets to his point with a beautiful i mean this is comics and and i'm not trying to be over the top here but i'm i'm completely serious this is comics at its very finest because it is yes. a beautiful blending of script and art because in a lot of ways, you know, I love Alan Moore in the sense that he knows when to shut up, stand back, and let the art tell the story. Trust, trust the artist to yeah. show what he wants instead of having everybody right. show, show and not tell. Right. And, so you've got, you don't have panels, you know, panel upon panel of word balloons saying, let me open this door. Let me pull out yeah. a pen. Let me dial someone up on the yeah. phone. You can My look God, at it. He's and smashing see. his way through that door. That right. door was supposed to hold up to even the strongest attack by a tank. How, how can he do it? You know, no, right. it's just, it's just him running and screaming. And I'm sure there was some descriptive, you know, it's just, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's just obvious that it wasn't like Alan Moore wrote this story and then fired it off to the artists 
who said, okay, we'll just draw it. There was obviously some, you know, a lot of collaboration and a lot of careful work. I mean, the art is painstaking. Yes. It's just, it's, it's, it's bordering on illustration in some parts. And, uh, you know, you can tell that they were working together to really, uh, to, it's almost like they took what, what Pascal wanted to do which was Pascal was honestly trying to breathe some new life into it too, and to be a, and to be a little envelope pushing. But I don't know if he was up to it, you know, with Swamp Thing. Maybe, you know, maybe Swamp Thing wasn't the book for him to do that with. But Alan Moore sort of, I think, I don't know if he sensed it or if it was just lucky that he wanted to do it too. But he sort of really brings to fruit what he wanted to do, and he re- actually does it, mm-hmm. and makes this all of a sudden something new and very interesting, you know, and that, you know, you had said something a moment ago that, uh, I kind of wanted to to wrap up my thoughts with this is I I've, I've heard a lot of words applied to what this is. And, and, you know, a moment ago you were, you were saying that too, is, you know, what do you call this? Cause see, I don't see this as a reboot, Although I've heard it called no. that, I, I've heard it, it called a revamp. I've heard it called a you know a lot of different things. If anything, I see this as a retooling. Yes, is that you're taking the thing, you're not doing the John Byrne you know back to its roots let's start approach, over. Or, yeah. or let's start over. Yeah, because that that's the popular thing in comics is let's completely start over again. You know, or you know the the thing of you know well you know this ti- this title is really old and this character is really old and we need to take him back to what made him great originally so let's let's you know do a back to basics approach but maybe not reboot it but this is not anything like that because it's it's not taking the character back to his roots it's not rebooting him it's just taking the character and going you know what Let's throw this whole thing on its ear. Let's let's do away with the human element. Let's give it a little kick in the ass. Yeah, kick in the basically. ass. Yeah, and and so he shot in the arm. Yeah, he comes in. He retools it with a very simple idea. What it, what if this creature never was human at all? And wow, you know, just what it needed. And and not only that, but then he starts posing. How would he feel about this? How would the people around him feel about this? You know? Right. I mean, we haven't seen Abby yet, but Abby was friends with Alec Holland. What what is she gonna? Mm-hmm. How how are people who know him? You know, all the characters that he's been, that he knows. How are they gonna react when they realize that this isn't even Alec Holland like they thought it was? You know, Liz Tremaine and all the and Alan Moore, t- you know, addresses all that and way more. Oh, oh way more. <laughs> but um, <laughs> my final thought on this is. You know, a lot of people sort of, like, make fun of me because I'm really into, like, the sort of alternative comics or the non-super... You know, I don't go, like, I don't, I grew out of superheroes or whatever, but this... These comics, this... Between this and... And it's funny because it was a Marvel and a DC superhero comic, or, you know, if you want to call Swamp Thing a superhero... But it was this and the Frank Miller Wolverine and Daredevil that were sort of the beginning of the end for me for superhero comics. Because they really whetted my appetite for like strong character development and 
you know that the the level of more so more so way more so with swamp thing swamp thing was blowing my mind constantly like the frank miller stuff i really liked it but it wasn't blowing my mind it wasn't like introducing really neat ideas it was just more in the presentation of the style of it right but these you know these made me just crave you know comics that that were more substantive yeah what well, you know but i don't want to say that because i don't want to say superhero comics are less substantive really because really i mean if you want to argue that it's just a matter of opinion and and you can you can pull as much substance out of superhero comics as you can with anything else i guess you know if on some levels but yeah they just they did that and it wasn't like a decision i made where i was like well i'm done with superhero comics they just stopped doing it for me you right. know what i mean right and um really like in the lately like my superhero comic experiences that have been positive lately that i read like the the burn x-men that we're reading i'm like i enjoy reading those i was i read them and but there's been some other stuff that i've read that's almost been a little bit of a slog some of my old comics that are you know of the more superhero vein and stuff like that it's that they, they just after a while they stopped you know i wasn't as interested i was yeah i was pursuing more stuff along this line and right. it was these are the comics that did it to me <laughs> and it's so funny that they were mainstream marvel and dc comics and it wasn't because i wasn't it wasn't because i was like wow superhero comics are really starting to suck nowadays it, it was more of like the bar got set really high and for and and it seems now that i'm thinking about it it was like the john Byrne stuff that like the fantastic four and alpha flight and stuff that was the superhero stuff that i stuck with right too because i loved the art and a lot of times john Byrne was involved in the writing or there was a little extra and the x-men too and the teen and the new mutants and stuff like that i was right. still reading those and they were trying you know they were being more I think that's too. that's a reason why those were the top books of the 80s and the ones that are looked back so fondly on is that they were the ones that were more than just, you know, the the fare that kids had had for, you know, 40 years before that of yeah, simple, story, yeah. Real, real character development. Real characters, like actual, exactly, actual, yeah. Actual character development where it's like not like we have to end each issue with everybody exactly like they were to keep them, you know, like in stasis. Like, you know, in like the the not the early days up until, you know, recently with Superman where it was like an adventure and at the end everything was back to normal exactly. There was nothing that like Superman two issues later was going like, Jesus Christ, I got to go to see my super shrink about, you know, <laughs> Lois Lane falling in that meat grinder. That really messed me up, you know. There wasn't anything like that because, A, Lois wasn't going in a meat grinder. And, B, even if she did, it would be like magic or an illusion or right. something. And at the end of it, all lessons would be learned. And, you know, and then, you know, the only time anything was ever referenced in the past, more or less, was to, like, catch up on who this guy was or or what the this guy's in jail for 
Well, that's all I got. So why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back with the final segment of the show looking at issues 28 through 30 of The Walking Dead. Yes. back with the walking dead and um this month scott will be giving you the rundown on the walking dead number 28 through 30 yes all right so get prepared to hear me for a little bit (laughs) all right here we go the walking like they're not used to that (laughs) (laughs) all right so the walking dead number 28 all these standard credits apply. Uh, Robert Kirkman, writer, Charlie Adler, is now doing covers as well as the interior art. So with number 28, we pick up right where we left off last time after the governor's revelation that he's feeding strangers to the zombies that he keeps in his gladiatorial style uh, games arena. So Rick asks him, so that's it then? He goes, you're going to feed us to your pet zombies? Is that what you did with the people in the helicopter? And the governor turns all kind of super villain style at this point. And after making sure Rick and the others realize that he's totally got them over a barrel, explains that, yes, he is feeding the helicopter survivors to the zombies because they had nothing that he wanted. They came from a news station in Atlanta, which might just as well be on the moon for all the good that it does the governor. So since they haven't anything of value or anything to contribute to the governor, he had them chopped up to serve as zombie food. Ick. So Rick's people, on the other hand, he sees great potential in them. He says he never believed their story about just having been walking around out there all this time. Not fucking likely, he says. And we get a really good panel of Rick. He's wordlessly glancing at Michonne as the uh, governor says this because she did exactly that. She survived out there on her own for months before hooking up with Rick and his group. But of course, she and Rick, neither one of them say this. They keep quiet the whole time. No, the governor says, you're from close by. Glenn, visibly shaken, asks the governor what he wants from them anyway, to which the governor replies, everything. So whatever they have, food, guns, bullets, weapons, tools, the riot suits, whatever, he wants all of it. Rick says that they found the suits on some dead bodies and that there's nothing else to tell. There's no camp, no other people, no supplies, nothing. But the governor doesn't believe him. And he says, uh, I know I'm going to be able to get all the information I need out of you, he says, prompting Rick to scream that there's nothing else to tell. So the governor suddenly seizes Rick's hand, uh, determined to show Rick just how serious his situation really is. One of the goons, uh, one of the governor's goons, slams Rick's face down on the table that's in the room, and he holds him still while the governor assures Rick that one of you will talk. He pulls out a giant meat cleaver, and as we get interspersed panels of two men beating the shit out of each other out in the arena, the governor lops off Rick's right hand. Michonne screams Rick's name, and the governor turns to leer at her as Rick, bleeding profusely, mutters, I'll kill you, before passing out. 
Michonne goes completely apeshit, tackling the governor and tearing off his fucking left ear with her teeth. One of the goons grabs her, but the governor orders him not to hurt her. He's going to have fun with her instead. He orders his men to lock the sobbing Glenn up and take Michonne to the room. So some other men are sent to haul Rick to the infirmary where the governor tells Dr. Stevens not to let Rick die because he's got something that I want and that uh, I'm far from done with him, he says. And in these pages, we get a glimpse of the dynamic that's at work here. It's really clear that the doc and the governor hate each other, barely tolerate each other, but the doc... You know, other than some slight back talking to the governor, he lacks any balls or anything to really stand up to this guy or to really take any seri- serious objection to what he knows that the governor's doing. So we're treated to some panels in which uh, we see Glenn in his cell. He's all balled up, you know, fetal position and sobbing. And the arena zombies chowing down on this huge bag of uh, chopped up people parts while the governor watches. So one of his men arrives to tell him that Michonne is ready. And he goes to where she's locked up, chained to a wall, and after ordering her legs secured as well, has her pants cut off. And he tells her in no uncertain terms that what he's about to do to her, he plans on doing every day as often as he can until she can figure out a way to kill herself. And in the infirmary... The issue wraps up with Rick awakening, rubbing his eyes, and noticing for the first time the bandaged stump where his right hand used to be. And that's number 28. All right, so moving on to number 29, uh, we see Rick struggle out of bed, but he collapses. Dr. Stevens and his assistant Alice find him and try to help him back into bed, but Rick attacks Stevens. So Alice sedates Rick, and they put him back on the cot. In her cell, Michonne sobs as the governor zips up his fly, and he tells her to go ahead, let it out, and he says, you've earned it, cry your little head off. But in a really nicely drawn, but also just like awful to look at panel, we see Michonne, and she's just thoroughly fucked up from clearly having been like viciously beaten. And she's defiantly glaring at the governor, and she tells him, I'm not crying for me, I'm crying for you. I think about all the things I'm going to do to you, and it makes me cry. It scares me. And I'm just like, whoa. Also, foreshadowing anybody? So, but the governor, you know, he's not phased by this at all. He kind of just laughs it off, and he informs her that he'll be back later tonight. So he says he's tired, and with the sun coming up, the governor heads back to his place, taking time to greet some folks along the way and kind of play the the friendly protector of the people and all that. And once in his apartment, he is attacked by a little zombie girl, but he just backhands her aside and yells at her to behave. And it turns out that this is his dead daughter that he keeps chained up in their place. So he goes to get some sleep, but he's no sooner sat down and closed his eyes than there's a knock at the door. And he answers it, and one of his men is there with a package for him that he says is something that you asked for. And it's related to the two survivors from the helicopter, plus a little something extra that the man just threw in that he thought the governor might want. So the governor takes the package, 
And uh, he also asks the man to make sure that uh, he's not disturbed, that he has to get some sleep. So he closes the door, walks back inside, and he tosses Rick's severed hand to the little zombie girl, and she munches down on it. So he goes into another room where he removes the heads of the pair from the helicopter and places him into what looks like a fish tank. Then he goes over and he sits down in his recliner and we get a, a really just, oh, it's a horrible full two-page spread of the governor. And he sits in his easy chair and he's complaining, 57 channels and nothing on, he says. And he stares at just row upon row of all these severed heads, just dozens and dozens of them staring at him from these like fish tanks. I, I assume that they're fish tanks. That's what they look like to me. And it's just a completely fucked up thing to see. So sometime later, uh, the governor has uh, Glenn brought from his cell and the guy that gets him ends up having to drag Glenn out because Glenn is just absolutely just paralyzed with fear. And he drags him to a cell adjacent to Michonne's where he wants Glenn to be able to hear as the governor rapes and viciously beats Michonne again. And the goon also tells the governor that he thinks Glenn's outfit may be prison riot gear. So in the infirmary, Rick makes friends with Dr. Stevens, who tells Rick that he has no love for the governor. And he relates the basic origin story of how their little enclosed community came to be. It seems that they all started out as this small group, and then they found this town uh, that had a National Guard station in these narrow alleyways. And they decided that they could defend this place. So they set up shop there. They walled off some streets. And that's how this little community came to be. So Philip, which is the governor's real name, Philip, you know, he did a good job of defending the people. And he eventually emerged as the leader, but very quickly showed his true colors. And the doc realizes what a complete psycho this guy really is. But he's also much too powerful for the doctor to oppose. Just then... Philip reveals himself. He's standing in the doorway. He's been listening to this conversation. And he came to have his ear bandaged up and just to kind of fuck with Rick. And Rick wants to know when the governor is going to start torturing him. And Philip replies, never. He says Rick is going into the arena and that Glenn, he says, has told him everything that he needs to know. He knows all about the prison. And in fact, he even let Glenn go. And the last thing he says as the book closes out, he says, and if he's stupid enough, he'll lead us right to it. So lastly, issue 30, we open to a riot gear, <clears throat> excuse me, we open to a riot gear clad figure darting and stumbling, huffing and puffing as he goes across a zombie infested field. He comes to the abandoned car, the one that Rick and the others used to go after the helicopter but it is still stuck in the mud and won't budge. So back at the prison, Andrea takes pride in her sharpshooting from one of the watchtowers, but Dale is distracted because he's thinking about their missing friends. And Andrea begs his assurance that if they never do return, that he's going to be okay and he's still going to be able to function and take care of her and their two newly adopted boys. And he promises her he promises her that he will, you know, having already lost his wife to the zombies, he figures, you know, if I can get through that, I can get through anything. And he tells her that everything's going to be all right. We get a brief scene of uh, Otis and Herschel's son, Billy, as they talk about candy bars and what women in the group, they might still have some chance of banging at some point. 
Carol talks to Rick's very worried wife, Lori. She's also very pregnant by this point. They talk out in the courtyard, but Carol's awkward attempts to comfort Lori just set Lori off. And she tries to pat Lori like reassuringly on the leg, but Lori interprets it as like another sexual pass at her. And she storms off in a huff and she takes Carl with her. So Axel, Herschel, and Maggie attempt to figure out how to start the generator. And Axel, you know, he's not always thinking when he talks, and he says something that upsets Maggie about saying if rather than when the others come back. And uh, she she's upset, but she also admits that she knows that it's not looking good. Otis tries to make up with his ex-girlfriend, Patricia, Patricia, and she grudgingly agrees to be his friend again. Back in their cell, Lori asks Carl to play quietly while she rests, and she curses Rick for running off and leaving her to worry about him yet again. Back up in the watchtower, Andrea tells Dale that she's practicing and doing all this practicing to stay sharp in case they ever get attacked, because she remembers how inviting this prison looked for their group when they stumbled upon it, and she figures that, you know, eventually a time may come when they'll actually have to fight for it. Foreshadowing anybody? So just then, the stunned look on Dale's face catches Andrea's eye. Following his gaze, she sees the lone riot gear attired figure running toward the prison. So Dale calls everyone to assist with opening the gate and then runs off. Andrea and the men struggle to get the gate open just in time for Dale to sail through the gates in the Winnebago plowing through walking corpses as he goes and he catches up to the lone figure and calls out to him to uh, climb on and then he loops around and goes back through the gates and into the prison so the figure falls off the side of the Winnebago and collapses he removes his helmet as uh, Lori rushes up to ask him if he's okay and it's Tyrese and he's exhausted and out of breath out of breath and he says that uh, he's fine and he tells her he couldn't find any trace of Rick and the others. He tracked them to the woods, but then he lost their trail. And he wrecked the bike that he drove out there to go looking for them. And then he was forced to run all the way back. So Lori just stands there staring at him. And you can see te- tears welling up in her eyes. Uh, but he tells her to, to stop that. He says until they see bodies, he refuses to accept, accept that his friends are dead. So then he goes to try to help fight back the uh, horde of the undead and close the gates back up before they're overrun. Back in Woodbury, outside the infirmary, one of the uh, governor's goons comments that he doesn't think that the governor's tactic with Rick worked, but the governor thinks that it did. He says, did you see the look on his face? He says, with that look, he told us everything we need to know. So now, convinced that a prison is out there for the taking the governor has a plan to either get Glenn to talk for real or to start interviewing their own people in hopes that somebody might have an idea where there's a prison nearby and he says as the issue closes out it's only a matter of time and that's Walking Dead's 28 through 30 nice so what'd you think of all that oh it's getting evil the, the governor's little village is probably the most ghoulish thing to have popped up in The Walking Dead yet. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, quite a house of horrors. This, and, uh, uh, yeah, this storyline, 
You know, it's funny because most of the comments I want to make about this are going to have to wait for a while because the, this this eventually hits a point where all of my feelings on it suddenly come to a head. And so I really want to wait for most of my comments. Most of them have to do with the governor himself. Right from the get-go, <clears throat> I got a very specific vibe about this guy. He, he gave me a very specific feel. And something's going to come along here in a little bit that really started to solidify that feel. And then there's a huge reveal even further along than that. When we get to that huge reveal, then I'm going to kind of backtrack to this point and, and tell you what my thought process was. But until then, I don't really want to spoil anything for... I know that we have people that are actually listening to this that what? don't know the... Uh, you know, they don't know the whole story. They don't read The Walking Dead. And what they know of it, they're getting from us and our synopses. So that's really weird to me. So for those people, I'd, I want to keep playing along with the uh, not spoiling ahead thing. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. let them get the story the same way we got the story. So I think well, I think that's kind of weird, but I think it's also pretty awesome. So I think you're kind of weird. <laughs> Why is that? But you're also kind of awesome. Oh, well, cool. <laughs> I like you too. Yeah, whatever. Don't let your Don't let it go to your head, kid. Um I think the governor's just he's the opposite side of the coin of Rick. He's evil, but he's just every, he's evil, but he's just every bit as smart and ruthless about survival. All right, well, let me ask you people then. as Rick is cuz he's got this he's he's got things under control and he's thinking it through, you know. He's if if he's evil, and he's the opposite side of the coin of Rick. What does that make him? Um, this is a comic book. Oh, a supervillain. Exactly. That's kind of where I was headed. Yeah. He's the closest thing so far to a supervillain. Yes, of or, or a villain. But yes, he is. But he is. He sort of. He sort of underlines. He's formed his own uh, community. It's formed around him because he's the strongest one there and he's the one that has the that personality to lead but he's just a twisted motherfucker who knows you know we don't know really what he was before but you know I mean Rick was a cop so you got that sort of forming and shaping him but um yeah and I mean and I mean you you know that he was a family he had a daughter but and that she's dead so that could have he could have lost it at that point he could have been a decent person up until his daughter died you don't know if he had a wife or what what the deal is that but she's not around anymore so we don't know what his history is but it was probably not good <laughs> but uh, it would be interesting yeah, to get that backstory to to know because i think that this i think see i don't want to spoil too much but i think right here was great potential for for kirkman to play a little bit more with the psychology of his own world in the sense that, you know, he's already shown us in certain ways that in a lot of ways, there's, there's an underlying hypocrisy that nobody talks about in our own modern society, that all it would take was yeah. knocking the underpinnings out of a couple of things. Oh, and yeah. Suddenly society just totally goes to shit. I think he had a perfect example to show that with the governor that what if this guy had been more or less just a regular Joe? Suddenly, the zombie apocalypse happens. Something happens. His daughter becomes one of them. 
and then he goes from whatever the hell his day job. Maybe he was like a I don't know, like a just a normal workaday guy, a mechanic or something. Yeah, and all of a sudden now he's in. He's thrust into a position of power where any sick fantasy he's ever had in his workaday life suddenly he has the power to to fulfill it. What would that do to a person? You know, I I personally believe. You know, just from my own experience, that he was a bad man to to begin with. But now, you know, the zombie apocalypse has actually been his opportunity, right? To fully, it reminds me actually of a of a Stephen King has lots of characters like that that are just sort of normal, mundane assholes, but in the circumstances of the stories, they either become supernaturally imbued or whatever. But they, you know, they they get to fulfill that assholeness to its basest and final conclusion of evil you know whereas they start out as being a bully and they end up becoming a mass murderer or whatever like this guy we don't know exactly what his story is but (laughs) boy he's you know I mean he really gets to he's and Kirkman does not shy away from the darkness when this comic came out you know I mean the, the outrage and feedback on Michonne being raped even though it's not portrayed very you know there's no nudity you don't really see it happening right but it's bru- I mean it's just brutal her when you see her face it's painful especially since it's a character you've started to care about right on top of this and you see that the that not only is the governor doing it because he's a sick motherfucker but he's also got his He's also using it to his advantage, too. He's using it to break Glenn. You know, he's he's got a twisted rationalization for everything, you know, it's so far. Except for really the heads in the in the fish tanks. Those are just decorations. Is that a fi- are those fish tanks? I think so. It looks like they even have bubble. It looks like he's like even got them lit up with bubbles going, yeah. you know, the aerators cuz there's bubbles coming up from them. That's what I thought. It looks like yeah. that I pictured, you know, him in just a room in like fish tanks, yeah, with fully set up for fish but just filled with corpses and the whole room must stink because he's got you know a dead daughter in there and she's eating. You know, uh, it just it's just horrifying. But on the other hand, aside from the story, I think our Adler's art is looking more and more like Frank Miller all the time. And these, <laughs> especially in the especially in issue thirty, the 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 scene with Otis and Patricia is looks. The, there's just a shot of Patricia's face scowling. That's pure Frank Miller, like mid to late 80s Frank Miller looking art. As a matter of fact, one of the frames has obviously been photocopied, you know, from of her of her scowling. It's the exact same frame twice. But just the way her hair is is cross hatched and the the way her face looks, it's very it, it looks like Frank Miller when Frank Miller would pencil and ink himself. Where uh-huh. he would ink it with a much finer line, and uh, like maybe um, Sin City and stuff like that. There but, were two um, art moments that I really liked in these three books, and one of them was uh, the moment I commented on when uh, you know the governor's he he comes right out and tells Michonne that he thinks her story's bullshit, 
And he says, you know, the the idea of them just having been out there walking around, he says, not fucking likely. And as he says that, we see Rick steal a glance at Michonne. And I just love that moment because it's a great panel. You can tell exactly what he's thinking that, wow, that's just what she did. She survived out there for all that time. Oh, I saw even more than that in there. I saw him kind of looking at her and communicating to her that... This guy, this is, you know, he was looking at her going, because this guy was saying shit, and they were probably realizing, holy shit, he's not stupid. Right, yeah. You know, yeah. He's, he's, he's smart, like, he's sly like us. But at the same time, he was completely underestimating Michonne. Right. He, like, when he said that, you know, he was looking at Michonne going, yeah, but that's what you did. But re- notice that he's focusing on, you know, he was focusing on Rick and just was calling her girly and, like, you know, just sort of belying his, you know, definitely what his thoughts on women were. And he was totally right. And I think Rick was sort of giving Michonne a, like, look that was saying, look, this guy's underestimating you. This might be one of his weak points, so pay attention right. to that. And as a matter of fact, Michonne actually gets him down on the ground. And if he didn't have goons there, she probably would have torn his throat out, you know. So... It's it's you're seeing two caged you know injured caged animals squaring off at this point you know from the prison set and from the you know um, the governor's set and it's ugly <laughs> it's ugly no this this was uh, every point in this series it seems every three or four issues you just reach a point where you go well you know they're 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 setting a new bar of how far Kirkman will go to show that things are brutal here. Right. You know, mm-hmm. He will not shy away to having, you know, I mean, you know, the, the, I, I've often been talking about how the characters are starting to look more worn and tired, but now they're actually starting to get, you know, Rick's now Rick's got a stump to show for his experiences. And, yeah. You know, scars across their faces. You know, limbs are limbs are being lost at at, at a rate very similar to Star Wars movies. So, <laughs> yeah, I was surprised by the number of people that wrote in requesting after this that that uh, Rick get fitted out with like the the chainsaw, chainsaw. hand. I was like, come on, please but, no. Uh, but the other art moment that re- the one that really really struck me was in the next issue in twenty nine. You know, the governor walks into his place and, you know, the, the little zombie girl, like, dives at him. You know, teeth bare, and she's like, rah, you know, going at him. Now, he backhands her, tells her to behave. And there's a great panel where she just looks at him and she's like wounded puppy dog style. You know, like when you like you when you reproach a, a child or a or a puppy or something. They, yeah. they have that, that kind of look like, you know, oh, I'm sorry, Daddy, you know, don't beat me kind of thing. And that really kind of freaked me out because, for one, I don't like intelligent zombies. I, I didn't like the turn that the Romero movies took where suddenly the, the zombies started to get smart. I like it when they're pretty much, pretty much mindless. Maybe they have some rudimentary skills where they could pick up like a like a blunt object to beat you with or something but that might be a, the, as sophisticated as they get but this here seems to indicate a, 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 a level of 
like he almost snaps her back into little girl mode. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, or there's just an, or it could, you know, sometimes it's like a pet. Sometimes a pet makes a face, whether they're really feeling that emotion or not that their face makes, you'd never know, you know? Right. And, and so, yeah, it may be, it may be a rudimentary thing. I hated the Romero zombies getting smart thing at first, but now I'm starting to like it because it, I, I see him doing that as being, a necessary thing with he could just keep making great action zombie movies but i could tell he wants to make them into social commentary so he's trying to add something to the mix you know giving him something more to work with right so so that's why he was doing it and okay i'll go along with that but um you know maybe not so much in this but i could sort of see the zombies as you know okay as as time goes on maybe Parts of their brain that have those memories in them start firing a little more, which actually, I mean, that adds a hellish to think that the zombies might start remembering a little bit and be like the ghost of a real person trapped inside right, yeah. of a zombie. That's pretty disturbing, you know? Yeah. So that you could take that in a good direction. I don't think it's going to, I, I just have a feeling it's not going to turn up in the walking dead but it's a nice little moment yeah the dynamic with him and his and his kid is yeah <laughs> it's it, very disturbing yeah yeah but just the thought that for a moment you know there was something there you know some spark of of the little girl that she had been or it was just an animal's reaction of getting smacked and being humbled right you know but i mean how much would that fuck with your mind you know because we'll see much later in this well that's why you know there's got to be some level of that why he would keep his zombie daughter around right he's a ruthless guy but you mean you mean he hasn't been able to bring himself to behead his daughter yet right uh yeah we're gonna see much later in this where there's another character that's experiencing something very similar to this that mm-hmm. says, you know, when when I feed this person, you know, this zombie for a brief time, I can I can see a glimmer of the person that they used to be. It's and, and that's it's disturbing, a, you know? Yeah, it's a horrible perverted reflection of parenthood. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the most primal part of parenthood which is feeding your kids, you know. Yeah. I remember, I can't remember, it was a Hal Hartley movie, but it was all these dysfunctional families. But every time any parent ever saw the kids, they were like, are you hungry? Do you want something to eat? You know, there was uh, was just the first thing a parent thought of was like, what do you want to eat? You want some food, you know? And yeah, (laughs) and it just becomes the most horrible perversion of that you could ever think of. Yeah. And at that note... I'm at the end of my notes on 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 these. Yeah, that's all I got. Because, you know, like I say, my biggest thing is is talking about the governor, and I want to hold as, all. As this thing the- goes on, yeah. yeah. As this thing goes on, there's going to be a lot more to add to this. Yep. Believe you me. So yeah, enjoying it. Um, disturbing as it is, it's still excellent. Very. I story. wouldn't want it any other way.
Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Twotruefreaks.libson.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libson, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. You can find me, Scott Gardner, both on Twitter and Facebook. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T. G-A-R-D-N-E-R. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. We are also members of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check it out at www.comicspodcasts.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. Thanks for listening. Join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Corps of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U.